Hear God's word today from Nahum chapter 1, beginning in verse 12. Thus says Yahweh, though they are safe and likewise many, yet in this manner they will be cut down when he passes through you. Though I have afflicted you, I will afflict you no more. For now I will break off his yoke from you and burst your bonds apart. Yahweh has given a command concerning you. Your name shall be perpetuated no longer. Out of the house of your gods, I will cut off the carved image and the molded image. I will dig your grave for you are vile. Behold, on the mountains, the feet of him who brings good tidings, who proclaims peace. O Judah, keep your appointed feasts. Perform your vows, for the wicked one shall no more pass through you. He is utterly cut off. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let's give thanks together. Father, we thank you for your word, and today we need your strength to receive your word, and we uh, need your strength to keep covenant, to perform our vows, to keep our promises, and to uphold uh, the covenant that you have cast with us. And so, Father, give us uh, your strength by your spirit today to understand these things and recognize our place in your covenant and the way that you uh, relate to us. And so we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. People of God, this little Old Covenant book, this Old Testament book of Nahum, at, you may or may not have ever read from beginning to end, so I'll give you a quick summary of its message. It's a decree of God's judgment against the city of Nineveh and against the kingdom of Assyria. Now, Nineveh ought to uh, sound pretty familiar to you. You know about the city of Nineveh because you know about the prophet Jonah, who had been sent to Nineveh to proclaim its destruction. And in the process of, of Jonah preaching, despite his foul temper and his very bad attitude, God was merciful to the city. God granted them repentance. God granted salvation to Nineveh. The pagan king of Nineveh tore off his robe. He sat in sackcloth and ashes. He proclaimed a time of fasting and crying out for God's forgiveness for the whole kingdom. You know the story, but it doesn't end there. There's more to the story because now by the time of the prophet Nahum, about a hundred years after the time of Jonah, the city of Nineveh and the kingdom of Assyria has broken covenant. They have returned to their idols. They have resumed their cruel, oppressive treatment of other nations, including the northern kingdom of Israel. So God gives Nahum this message. And in this prophecy, in this book, he warns Nineveh of God's power, of God's sovereignty, and of God's righteous judgment. And so if we go back to uh, the, the beginning of the chapter, chapter 1, it's a, it's a withering uh, uh, forecast of uh, a serious destruction. And this is how the book starts in, in chapter 1, verse 1. The burden against Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum the Elkishite. God is jealous. Why is God jealous? God is jealous for those things that belong to him and the glory and the praise due to him from those things that are his. Nineveh repented. The king of Nineveh tore his clothes and repented and they entered into covenant with God. They put away their idols. They put away all their wickedness and they were his heritage. They belonged to God, but now they've turned back over to idols. So God is jealous and Yahweh avenges. Yahweh avenges and is furious. Yahweh will take vengeance on his adversaries, and he reserves wrath for his enemies. Yahweh is slow to anger and great in power, and he will not at all acquit the wicked. 
Yahweh has his way in the whirlwind and in the storm and the clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry and dries up all the rivers. Bashan and Carmel wither and the flower of Lebanon wilts. The mountains quake before him. The hills melt and the, and the earth heaves at his presence. Yes, the world and all who dwell in it. Who can stand before his indignation? And who can endure the fierceness of his anger? His fury is poured out like fire and the rocks are thrown down by him. Yahweh is good. Now it doesn't sound, God is just and he is, he is good. Yahweh is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. And he knows those who trust in him. But with an overflowing flood, he will make an utter end of its place and darkness will pursue his enemies. And historical records tell us that the city of Nineveh was in fact destroyed by an overwhelming flood. This is coming for Nineveh. This is the picture that Nahum the prophet is painting for Nineveh. But in the midst of this, God's message and God's prophet turns the spotlight on the remaining southern kingdom of Judah. He starts by speaking to Nineveh, but then he turns and addresses his own people. He's using, God is using Assyria as a canvas on which he's going to paint this portrait of his divine justice and intolerance for sin. God is saying, look, this is what happens to covenant breakers. This is what happens when you turn away from me and forsake me. And instead of continuing in covenant with me, you embrace death and darkness and ignorance and idolatry. So then he addresses Judah in those verses I read at the very beginning. He says, listen to the one who brings the gospel of peace to you. Keep your appointed feasts. Perform your vows. Keep your promises. Keep your contracts. In other words, remember the covenant. Embrace the covenant. Be covenant keepers, not covenant breakers. In in contrast to the gross disobedience of Assyria and in, in contrast to their departure from the covenant, you, people of God, you, people of Judah, perform your vows. And so I want to focus on the exhortation today from Nahum, perform your vows and I will deliver you from this idolatrous age, from these idolatrous people. So like Judah, you and I are surrounded on every side by covenant breakers. And the rot of covenant breaking goes right down to the foundations of our society. Husbands and wives fail to keep their vows with each other. They, they sin against their marriage. They sin against the covenant that, that they have entered into and they end up divorced. And then turning toward their children, they fail to uphold their God-given responsibilities toward them. They ignore their children. They neglect and abuse their children. They fail to nurture them in the Lord. And then children in turn don't obey or honor their parents. And adding to this, business owners and corporations mistreat their employees. Workers cheat their employers. They both turn and lie to their customers. They, they both misrepresent themselves and their product. They fail to keep their promises. You see, we're so used to being lied to and manipulated that covenant breaking is the atmosphere in, that, that we breathe. It's, it's, the, it's the place we live. Who can find someone running for political office who's upright? Who can really, it really intends to keep their campaign promises. We listen to campaign promises all the time and we just think, oh yeah, that's a joke. We know they don't mean what they say. 
the gods of our age, the artists, the entertainers, the musicians, the athletes, it, it, it seems like every one of them sooner or later are inevitably going to be exposed as a hypocrite and a liar. And then we, in turn, out of a desperate attempt at self-preservation, we get in on the covenant-breaking act by stealing from and lying to and injuring our neighbors rather than loving them as ourselves and keeping covenant with them. We don't want covenant, we want convenience. That's, that's what we're after. Not covenant, but convenience. And that's, that's how Nahum describes Nineveh. If you flip over and you're following along in chapter 3, uh, he gives this woe to the bloody city. It's full of lies and robbery. Its victim never departs. The noise of a whip and the noise of rattling wheels, of galloping horses, of clattering chariots, Horsemen charge with bright sword and glittering spear. There is a multitude of slain, a great number of bodies, countless corpses. They stumble over the corpses because of the multitude of harlotries of the seductive harlot, the mistress of sorceries who sells nations through her harlotries and families through her sorceries. That's, that's the description of the culture of Assyria in the same way. Our covenant-breaking society is built on a great pile of corpses, dead marriages, dead families, dead children who have been sacrificed on the altar of convenience. And so in our covenant breaking, God is turning us over to this, this wickedness that we see all around us. He's turning us over very literally to idols. It struck me this week even how, how much, how, how very well we, we might uh, be uh, in the midst of being turned over to uh, idols in this land, in, in idolatry. Anthony uh, forwarded me in, uh, a website this week. There's some Hindu group that has bought 180 acres out in Moncure, North Carolina. And there they intend to not only build a temple and a shrine, but the largest image of their God in the world. And they've got a, 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 an image or a, a, a computer mock-up of it, and it's it's tall. It reaches over the trees. And there, I counted up like a dozen Sikh, Buddhist, and Hindu temples in the, uh, uh, in the triangle. We, it seems, are being turned over some, to some very ancient idols in our land. Embracing our brand new, shiny, modern idols, God is turning us over to ancient idols. Uh, but that's what happens. That's the pattern that, that, that we see over and over with Israel. When they break covenant, God puts them under idolaters, and if they don't cry out, and if they don't repent, and they don't ask for God's deliverance, then he judges them, and he scrapes them off the earth. That's, that's what happens. So you and I might expect a high degree of apathy from the world around us when it comes to covenant keeping, but, but the church is also guilty and, and of ignoring the covenant, that, that, that God has revealed himself as a trinity of persons within an eternal covenant. God is the covenant-keeping God. He always keeps his vows. God always relates to man in terms of covenant. But we, we don't think in these terms, and the church doesn't really highlight or underscore this. Most Christians in our day don't speak or think of their relationship to God in covenant terms. We, we have a lot of ways. We have a whole host of ways of, of describing uh, our, our personal, internal, abstract expressions of faith. But we don't typically speak of our covenant with God. A relationship with God that includes vows, solemn commitments, requirements, obligations. 
But because God is a God of covenant, when you enter relationship with him, there are things he has sworn to do for you. And there are things he requires of you. We're talking about objective, external, personal, yes, but also corporate, concrete realities. The God of the Bible is the God who calls you to keep covenant. I'm going to read a lot of verses today. Psalm 25, all the paths of the Lord are mercy and truth to such as keep his covenant and his testimonies. You heard uh, Tim read uh, from Genesis this morning. God said to Abraham, you shall keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you throughout their generations. Moses says in Deuteronomy, therefore know that the Lord your God, he is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and mercy with whom? Well, for a thousand generations with those who love him and keep his commandments. In God's dealing with man, God leads with the covenant. I keep using this word, covenant. What are you talking about? What is the covenant? Well, I want you to think in terms of, whenever you hear the word covenant, I want you to think in terms of your relationship to God, but not, but not simply uh, the kind of relationship that you have with a coworker or, you know, a, a friend necessarily, but God's covenant is a social, structural, gracious relationship. And I'm going to use those three words. It is social, it is structural, it is gracious. And that, that covenant is first maintained and eternally held among the members of the Trinity, the persons of the Trinity. And then that is extended to his people. Let's explore what that means briefly. First, God's covenant is a social structure. God is three persons. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Each person has a, a personal relationship with the other two members of the Trinity. They have a personal relationship among themselves, each loving the others, communicating with, and glorifying the others. So God's identity is God, the, God is the God who lives in community. God is the God who keeps covenant with himself perfectly. And so what does it mean for us to be created in the image of God? Well, in one sense, we are, are individually created in his image, but also corporately. God is a communion. God is a community. God is three persons in covenant. And so if we live and are created in his image, then we also are in communion and covenant and in, uh, and in concord with each other. If we were to imitate God perfectly, we would have we would have perfect society. Because he is one in three, then he relates to us both personally and corporately. So each of us are united to him individually. Every one of us in this room are going to stand before him and give account individually. But we are also created to enjoy social fellowship with God, to enjoy him together with his people. There are no Lone Ranger Christians. There are no Christians all by themselves. God has put us in the church. He's put us in community. So we're created to enjoy social fellowship with God and then to enjoy him together with his people. We were created to enter a community of life. So that's the first, that's what I mean by the covenant is social. That means the covenant is communal. Uh, and, and it's not this, this uh, uh, cherry picking uh, kind of work that God is doing, but God is saving a people. God is saving and created a, a kingdom. But we don't just stop with social. It's not simply a social structure. 
That community that God creates is not an anarchical society. It, it is not a ruleless society. We do not have any absolute freedoms. That community is fenced in by expectations. So secondly, the covenant is not only social, but it is structural. God gives laws to define what faithfulness looks like, both personal faithfulness and corporate faithfulness and where the boundaries of society are. It means I don't make up the laws. You don't make up the laws. God gives us his law and he gives us Jesus who obeyed his law perfectly. And Jesus is our model of covenant keeping. So it's, it's not up to me to add anything to God's requirements or take anything away from them, but it's only my duty to submit to God's covenant requirements. So the, so the community of life is not a free-for-all. God's law gives us structure. It gives us the structure of the covenant. However, that law, that structure doesn't guarantee my participation in the covenant. I need something else. I need God's grace to bring me into personal involvement in the covenant life of God. So it is social, it is structural, but thirdly, the covenant is gracious. When God created Adam, he invited Adam to enjoy and participate in the covenant life of the Trinity. But Adam broke covenant. Adam, by his sin, plunged humanity into darkness and separation from God. And as a result, you and I are born dead in trespasses and sin until God's grace comes to us through the power of the Holy Spirit. And based on the work of Jesus on the cross, Jesus, through his spirit, gives us new life. And that grace that he gives us not only brings us up from the dead, but it empowers us to be covenant keepers. We cannot be covenant keepers apart from his grace. So the law gives us the standard, but grace gives us the power to keep the standard. The law shows us the structure, but grace enables our obedience to it. So you never operate completely on your own resources. God never leaves you to your own strength. Only by God's grace are we able to be faithful to our relationship to him. So we need to do that every once in a while. We need to reset. We use the word covenant a lot, but we need to reset and understand what we're talking about. So God's covenant is a relationship that is social, it is structural, and it is gracious. Now, our baptisms are our markers of our covenant with the triune God. They are, that's, that's the entrance, that's the door. Um, as, as the Apostle Paul said, as many of you has been, have been baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. In our baptisms, we put on Christ. We are in union with him. <clears throat> and so because that covenant that we enter, of course, is social, we are brought into a community of life. So then we have a community uh, a covenant with each other, not only with God, but we have a, a covenant with each other, which we signify by our membership in and faithfulness to a local congregation. We have covenant with God, yes, but we have a covenant with each other. And that covenant is also, what do you, what do you think it is? Well, it is social, it, is, it has structure, it is gracious. The covenant we have with each other mirrors God's holy covenant. Our covenant with each other is social. Our covenant of membership in a local congregation is social. We enter the church personally. 
as individuals who are each accountable, but also corporately. Ordinarily, we join God's church as families. We, we, uh, we commit ourselves to a local congregation as families. Infants are brought into the church by their parents. So it's social. It is also structural. As, as members of this congregation, we have vows. We have boundaries of the covenant that we pledge to keep. We have duties that we must perform. And it is also gracious because though we have a covenant with each other and a covenant with God, none of us keep that covenant perfectly. We sin against each other. So we exercise grace and mercy. Every Lord's Day, we engage in covenant renewal worship. Every week, we renew our covenant with God and with each other at his table. And so because it has standards... <clears throat> and because it is gracious, because it has structure, because it is gracious, if you sin against the covenant in a high-handed way, in an open public way, you will be called to repentance. You will be called to confess your sins and to change and to turn. And we give you space and we give you time to repent. That's what it means to be in covenant with a local congregation. It's a relationship marked by membership. And in our congregation, we have membership vows. Now, I should stop and note right here that there's some broader debate in the church today about the necessity of church membership and whether we should ask people or require people to take vows to join a local congregation. And, and so the argument goes, isn't, isn't baptism enough? Isn't a profession of faith enough? And so that everyone who worships with you, you just recognize they're a brother and they're a sister and you don't need to formalize that, that relationship. You don't need to formalize membership in the church. Well. I've heard that argument, and there are a lot of uh, what-ifs and scenarios that flow out of that discussion. I, we can't chase every one of them down right now. My conviction is that some recognition of church membership is necessary, and I base that on Hebrews 13, where we get that instruction on the role of elders in the church. And, and here's what Hebrews 13 says. Remember those who rule over you and who have spoken the word of God to you. Obey those who rule over you and be submissive for they watch out for your souls as those who must give account. Let them do so with joy and not with grief for that would be unprofitable for you. Well, in order to obey that, I, I believe that requires two lists. I think what that pas passage is asking for is two lists. If we're to remember and obey those who rule over us, then we need a list of our elders. We need to know who our local elders are. And then in turn, if the elders are to give account for you, then the elders need a list of whose souls they need to watch out for. It would be very troubling for me if I knew that I would have to stand before Jesus someday and give account of someone who just passed through our congregation, whether they were there for a few weeks or where they were traveling or where they came and went or they just hung out for a while. And does Jesus expect me to give, a, to give account for someone who's just sort of hanging out and passing through? Or is it better to formally recognize our relationship to our elders and to each other and say, okay, we're accountable to you you're accountable to us. We're going to form a covenant and we're going to commit ourselves to each other. You have recourse if we're not faithful to you. And we have process to follow if you aren't faithful to the body. So you see, I, I still believe that, that membership is necessary. And I think we're doing the right thing by requiring uh, vows to enter membership. How does discipline and accountability work when there's no 
formally recognized membership in the local church. And so I, I always rest on that great Presbyterian proof text, let all things be done decently in order, right? We can always go back to that. Let all things be done decently in order. And good order seems to require a practice of maintaining membership and, and a role of people who have covenanted together. So when we enter into membership in this body together, when someone wants to join our congregation, they meet with the elders, we ask them about their faith. What do you believe? Who are you? Tell us your story. Are you trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ? And then we have membership vows in our church constitution that we go over with them. And then the following Lord's Day or the earliest possible opportunity, we have them recite and answer those vows right in front of the whole congregation to publicly acknowledge them. Because we have all agreed that we're going to live a certain way and we're going to set boundaries for this community. The vows that we take, the vows of membership that we have all taken, they're not a formality. It's not a rubber stamp. It's not some archaic vestige of old church order that really doesn't make any sense anymore. These vows, these membership vows that we have all taken are our promise to each other before God that we're going to keep covenant together. We will perform our vows. And so the, the session, you might have wondered, where is he going? He's been talking for a long time. What is he doing here? Well, let, the, the session has asked me um, to review the vows that we've all taken together and spend a couple of Sundays uh, understanding the, the biblical underpinning of the vows that we've taken together. And we've got those printed in your bulletin if you uh, have your bulletin with you. It's under the prayer list. Um, I've, we've got the membership vows. The first two have to do with our faith. The last three have to do with our faithfulness. Uh, and, if, and if you want to follow along, I'm going to read them again. Do you acknowledge yourself to be a sinner in the sight of God, justly deserving his wrath and without hope apart from his sovereign mercy? That's question one that we ask of, of new members. Do you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as the Son of God and Savior of sinners? And do you trust in him alone for salvation as he is offered in the gospel as priest, king, and prophet? Do you now promise in humble reliance upon the grace of the Holy Spirit that you will strive to live a life of repentance and obedience in a manner worthy of the followers of Christ? Do you promise to support the church in its worship and work to the best of your ability? Do you, do you submit yourself to the government and discipline of the church and promise to pursue its purity and peace? Those are the vows that we've, all, that we've taken together in this congregation that mark, that's the structure of our covenant. So we'll unpack the first two today and we'll look at the other three next week. The first two questions of, of this list deal with the gospel and your understanding of it. What we're asking is, are you a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ? Do you recognize your need for a savior? Do you understand the gravity of your sin? As you come to the Lord Jesus, do you believe that you're contributing to your salvation in any way? Do you think you have merited God's favor? Do you think you have earned his blessing? Are you leaning on your own works, your own deeds, your thoughts, or are you trusting completely in him? And that's, those, that's, that's what these first questions deal with. Do you believe the gospel? Now, recognize what we don't ask. It's just as important what we don't ask as what we do. You know what we don't ask? We don't ask are you a Presbyterian? We don't ask that question. That's deliberate. We don't ask, are you reformed? We don't ask, are you a Calvinist? We don't ask, have you read Calvin's Institutes? <laughs> Though I have, and they're really great, and I think you should read them, we don't ask that question. We don't ask, are you a credo-baptist or are you a pedo-baptist? We don't ask with regard to the sign gifts, are you a continuationist or are you a cessationist? 
We don't ask, are you married? Are you single? How much money do you make? How much did you pay for your house? We do not ask for whether you're an American or what your skin color is or where you were born. We don't ask for your opinion on American politics. We don't ask if you went to trade school or college or if you went straight to work right out of high school. We don't even ask if you follow UNC, Duke, or NC State. We don't ask any of those questions. This isn't an oversight. This is all very deliberate. Why? Because we want the door to the church to be as wide as the door to heaven. That, that's the principle. The door to the church is as wide as the door to heaven. The, the access to this table is as wide as the door to heaven. That's what we want to maintain, right? So um, we, we are thankful that the entrance to heaven is not based on perfect theological understanding or else I would be disqualified. So you're not required to hold positions on certain theological convictions to hold the church. We do recognize the ecumenical creeds that define Orthodox Christianity. Can you affirm the Apostles' Creed? Can you affirm the Nicene Creed? Those are the best definitions we have, the best summaries we have of the historical Christian faith. Now, there may be some things that we would want to add, additional things we want someone to confess or affirm before they become a church officer, or before they become a missionary, or before we let them lead or teach in any capacity, certainly. But by not insisting that everyone has to have everything ironed out to become members, it gives, it gives us space and time to grow together, to wrestle with things and to figure things out. And at the same time, we don't erect barriers and walls of division where God does not put them. We are forbidden from erecting barriers, dividing walls of class or status or nationality or race or education or income or creating new tests of fellowship around the lines that we draw. There is only one dividing line in the human race. That is the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. That's the only barrier. That's the only line. Are you united to Jesus by baptism or are you estranged from the life of the Trinity? That's it. That's the only question. We're always drawing these other battle lines, but this is the only one that God recognizes. And these other lines do not please the Lord Jesus. He's not happy with that at all. And the danger is to always redefine the church around our own barriers, to draw boundaries in other places besides our relationship to the Lord Jesus. And so we try to make the church the Whole Foods church, or we try to make the church the, you know, the, the young urban professionals church, or, or the hipster church, or the little house on the prairie church. And we adopt these oddities of behavior that are very sectarian and very, very narrow. It becomes more about conforming to this, this extra biblical standard than it is whether you are really in union with Christ. Now, some of this stuff is cultural. Some of it's unavoidable. We have, we have so many blind spots in these areas that, that, it, that it's, it's really hard to grasp and grapple with them. But it's, it's critical that we at least recognize that there is only one division in humanity. And to avoid, intentionally, deliberately avoid these other lines and to work against it. So that's the first question. That's these, these first two These first two vows drill into that core issue. Do you understand the gospel? Do you belong to Jesus? The first question again, do you acknowledge yourself to be a sinner in the sight of God, justly deserving his wrath and without hope apart from his sovereign mercy? So we're asking, do you believe that mankind is basically good and pleasing to God? 
Or do you believe that man is born in sin, displeasing to God and headed for hell apart from God's mercy? Well, which is it? What does the Bible say? Well, uh, Romans 5 tells us that sin came into the world through one man, Adam, and death through sin, so that death spread to all men because all sin. By one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. Do you believe that? Do you believe that you're one of those sinners? Well, Romans 3 says all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But deep down, we're a little bit good, right? We're a little bit okay. Uh, all we like sheep have gone astray. We've all turned every man to his own way. Uh, Jeremiah 17, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Romans 7, I know that nothing good dwells in me. That is in my flesh. Psalm 14, there is none who does good. No, not one. So we're asking, do you believe and do you agree with the scriptures and confess that you are a sinner in the sight of God, that your sin and, and your behavior, your, your sin nature carries you out of his presence, out of his fellowship. And because of his sin, you know you deserve judgment. You know that the wages of sin is death. So that you're a, a, apart from his sovereign mercy, you're without hope. That's what we're asking. The content of that first vow is whether you have fully reckoned with your own sinfulness, your own spiritual condition apart from Jesus. And if you have, you confess your sin and you confess both the depth of your sin and the height of God's mercy. And keeping that before you, the depth of your sin and the height of God's mercy, hopefully when you interact with other Christians, you remember that. And you remember that you are a, a sinner and you don't come from some lofty position of, of someone who has self-righteously saved themselves or earned God's favor. You demonstrate the same mercy you have been shown. The second vow deals with your trust in Jesus. Do you believe in the Lord Jesus as uh, the Son of God and the Savior of sinners? And do you trust him alone for your salvation as he's offered in the gospel as priest, king, and prophet? That's the second question. Do you believe that the God of creation has revealed himself to us through the person of Jesus Christ? that the second person of the Trinity was made man, that he lived a sinless, perfect life of obedience before the face of the Father, that he was crucified, dead, and buried, that he rose again and ascended to the right hand of God the Father. All of this he does on behalf of his people as the Savior of sinners. Do you trust that man, Jesus, with your eternal life? Are you trusting in him alone or... Are you trusting in your own efforts, your own contributions, your own works, your own religious duties, your own heroic deeds? Well, which is it? Well, again, we turn to the scriptures. Jesus said in John's gospel, I am the way, I am the truth and the life. No man comes to the Father except by me. In Acts chapter 4, Peter points to Jesus and says, there is no other name given under heaven, I'm sorry, no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. There's no other. It's Jesus or nothing. There is no alternative. There's no other plan. You want to study comparative religion? You want to see if there's something else out there? I, I, I save you a lot of work. There's nothing. It's all bankrupt. It's all empty. There is no other route to life. There's no other plan of salvation. There's no other way to have freedom from guilt. There's no other way to be delivered from sin. There's no other way to escape the wrath of God. Life cannot be had apart from faith in Jesus. That's it. That's all there is. And that's what this second vow asks of you. Do you believe this? 
In one sense, it's the most simple thing in the world to accept this. It's the most simple thing in the world. You want life? Call on the name of Jesus. You know Romans 10. If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved because with the heart one believes unto righteousness and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. What can you add to that? What contribution have you made to that? Nothing, nothing. You bring nothing. I, appreci- I really appreciate that we add into this vow the offices of Jesus. So do you, do you accept him? Do you trust him as he's offered in the gospel as priest, king, and prophet? Do you believe that Jesus is your priest? There is one God, one mediator between God and men, the man Jesus Christ. That's what Paul says in 1 Timothy. In other words, there are no saints, living or dead, for you who can intercede in the place of Jesus. Jesus is your priest. That's what we're asking. Do you believe that? Secondly, do you believe Jesus is your king? Revelation 19 says Jesus is king of kings and Lord of lords. To him belongs all glory, power, and honor. In the end, all rulers will either submit to him or be conquered and abolished. He alone will reign supreme as king and Lord of all the earth. There is no power, there is no king, there is no other Lord who can oppose him and win. That includes me and you. You'll lose every time. His reign is absolute. So do you submit to him as king? Are you his royal subject? And then thirdly, do you believe Jesus is your prophet? The Westminster Shorter Catechism asks this question, how does Christ execute the office of prophet? And the answer is Christ executes the office of prophet by revealing to us through his word and spirit the will of God for our salvation. Do you believe that Jesus is the source of everything you need for salvation, life, and godliness? Do you believe and know that in Jesus you are fully equipped to face every challenge, answer every problem, be faithful in every circumstance that comes your way? Maybe you don't know the answer. Maybe you don't have the answer, but you believe that Jesus does have the answers. And that if you submit to him and pay attention to what he says in his word, by the help of his spirit, by the help of his people, you can figure it out. But foundationally, you accept the authority of Jesus and his word above all others. That's what we're asking you. Do you receive Jesus as your priest, as your king, as your prophet? Now, why do we ask these questions? And I said, we're only gonna look at the first two today. We ask these questions because we want to know, do members of this congregation believe this? Do you believe this? Are you willing to agree to this? Do you confess it? If you don't confess this, if you believe something else, if you're following another gospel, let us know now. Here's your chance. We need to know if you're trusting in Jesus because we need to know if you have his spirit dwelling in you. If you don't, If you don't have a spirit dwelling in you, then nothing else matters. Nothing we do or say matters. If you don't have uh, a union with Jesus and you aren't trusting in him, you don't have the power to keep covenant. You don't have the strength to keep the covenant. If you aren't trusting in Jesus, all of this wonderful liturgy and singing and sacrament and festivity, all of it is just a fancy way to go to hell, right? Without Jesus, this is all just a very fancy way to head for death and destruction. The church is the community of people who have covenanted together to live as the body of Christ. We are the body, he is the head. So we need to make sure that you're connected to the head. Membership in the church is not like belonging to a club or joining a sports team. It's not just getting your name on a list. Our our vows of membership say 
This is what they communicate, that we are taking seriously the, promise, the, the promises made to us in our baptism. We're taking seriously the covenant that God has made with us, and we are committed to extending that covenant into our lives and into our relationships with each other. We are vowing that by the power of the Holy Spirit and the grace of God that he has extended to us through the work of Jesus, that we're going to live as people who have been transformed by the covenant life of the Trinity. This is the gospel that we hold forth, that we confess. This is the gospel that we believe, that we live. It's not a false gospel of self-preservation or idolatry or works righteousness. And what we're asking is, do you vow to uphold that gospel? Will you keep covenant? So in the midst of dealing with Nineveh, God turns to Judah and says, you Perform your vow. You keep covenant. You keep your promises. Likewise, God turns to us in the midst of dealing with a wayward and rebellious world. And he turns to his church and he says, you be covenant keepers in an idolatrous age. Reject all idols. And we pray in the midst of this that God would hear our prayers, that, that he would make our land a covenant-keeping land, that he would turn the hearts of our countrymen, that he would bring them into his eternal covenant, that he would knock down all idols and either convert or run off all idolaters. But the world doesn't get it until we get it. And so God says to Judah and to us, perform your vows. Keep your commitments. Embrace the covenant. That is the call. Next week, we'll look at the rest of our vows, but for now, we'll stop. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we ask you to give us your Holy Spirit so that we can keep the commitments that we've made to each other and to you. We can't do it by ourselves, but we thank you for the structure that you have provided for us, that we're not wandering in the darkness, that we're not wandering in ignorance, but that you have communicated us, uh, to us clearly uh, your requirements and you've given us your son, you've given us your Holy Spirit to enable us to keep these things. And so, Father, we pray that you would strengthen us in Jesus' name. Amen.